1: Hello and welcome to Leadership Beyond Borders. I'm Kimberly Liu, your host, and this series is in cooperation with Cinda Virtual. And Cinda brings you thought leaders and business stories from all over the world. Now you can learn more about Cinda under www.cinda.org. Now we don't only bring you leaders and businesses from all over the world. We also have listeners from all over the world. So good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are listening from today. And if you're new to the series, let me tell you what the series is about. Leadership Beyond Borders is about the impact, globalization, digital transition, and the connected world is having on our organizations and what this impact is doing to the kind of leadership we need to drive long-term success in today's economy. In this series, we've talked about everything from business issues such as artificial intelligence, digital transitions, and data protection regulations, to leadership issues such as gender balance, and generational management, and we also have talked about business values and ethics that may impact your organization or your individual career, so please listen to us live every tuesday three p m specific time and I happen to miss us don 't worry we 're on every podcast platform. you can listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and listen to us because in this series. You can get great advice, leadership success stories, stories you can learn from, stories that can motivate you, stimulate new ideas, and possibly even be the key to your success. I invite you to contact me. Send me your thoughts and insights to leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com or go to my website, leadershipbeyondborders.net. When you send me an email, tell me what kind of subjects you want to hear about on this show. But remember, if you're in a leadership position or aspire to be in one, regardless if your business is international or local, make sure you join us each week and we will make sure that you take away something useful either for your business or yourself. And today, we're coming onto a subject that lies very close to my heart. We're going to talk about organizational culture. Now, there are many organizational cultural models and theories. And some of them range from shine to cook to Hofstede to handy. And I'm sure if you attended business schools, you probably certainly took a course on organizational culture, and you'll recognize many of the famous names. But the question is, which models right? Most of these models are based on business or psychological foundations. But what would happen if you looked at organizational culture from another angle? Most of us think of organization culture as the way employees interact with their workplace, but there is more to it. And today, many companies are questioning what is organizational, especially in the wake of the pandemic. Now many organizations had to change so rapidly, they had to change how they interact with their employees, and the question is, did this actually change their culture? Now, we're going to talk about this today, and we're going to talk about it with an expert, an expert in organizational and corporate culture. Now, David White, Ph.D., is the author of Rethinking Culture, which is a book that's already on Amazon, and a new release that just came out last week, Disrupting Corporate Culture. Now, he is the partner and co-founder of Ontos Global, located in Berkeley, California. Now, Untos Global focuses on new approaches to organizational culture and change based on the emerging science of the cultural mind. They help organizations manage and sustain transformation, working with companies such as ITT. Fidelity Investments, Pratt & Whitney, CVS and many more. Now David prior to Antos, he held positions at Microsoft, Mercer HR Consulting and many more. And for Microsoft, he was a director of talent and organizational capability at Microsoft where he led and developed Microsoft's integrated platform for people management and leadership development. And also a fun fact about David, he's also a professional jazz guitarist and a composer. So, David, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Kimberly. Uh, okay, uh, great. Thank you, and thank you for the nice introduction.
1: Okay, great. So, um, let's just let's start with a very simple question. Um, what inspired you to write the new book that just came out?
2: Yeah, thank you. Um, the Disrupting Corporate Culture book is really a, a book or, uh, for people like me and my colleagues and my clients. Um, and uh, what their inspiration for that book really goes back 20, 20 30 years and all my um, work in corporations, mostly on the inside of companies trying to lead large change projects and realizing that uh, most of the approaches to corporate culture and organizational culture and culture change that I was party to uh, never seemed to work very well. And so this book was really inspired, uh, was an inspiration to try to bring some of the emerging science of the cultural mind that you referenced in the introduction to to a wider general business audience and um, not just an academic audience, which really was the focus of my first book.
1: Okay. And I mean, with your experience, especially at Microsoft and, and some of the other companies, you've, you've probably seen many executives trying to struggle with corporate culture, okay? And um, in, in some of your writings, you talk about the, the myths of corporate culture and, and being a basis on maybe why some people struggle with. What are those myths about co- corporate culture?
2: Yeah, the myths are, the first chapter of my new book talks about this extensively, and um, uh, I, I, I zero in on five, which I think are pretty pervasive. Um, the biggest of those, or the most common and prominent of those is, you know, that culture starts at the top, that the leaders somehow set the culture by what they say and do, Um when you look at culture through the the lens of cognitive science and uh, the lens of anthropology, uh, I'm an anthropologist, and culture really has been the focus of study of anthropologists for 100 years, um, you don't see anything in that literature that has to do with uh, culture being set by an individual. Um, individual people have um, relatively little to do with culture, and if you study the relationship between the brain and culture, you find that... Um, this idea of a leader somehow magically kind of setting the culture based on what she or he wants um, is, is really not supported in, 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 in the literature beyond sort of uh, what you get in the classic business school texts. And so it's a, it's a curious, uh, curious phenomenon. You start looking at it a little more closely. You realize that um, it's convenient to think about leadership as leaders as sort of having a direct um, impact on culture. But it's not really supported in any empirical kind of way, so I'm very curious about about that, and that's that's one of the one of the big myths um, that I try to uh, uh, breathe some air into. I guess is the way I would say it.
1: Well, I mean, when that—that's quite. I mean, it is quite a big myth because you know when you're talking to leaders, um, many times leaders really overestimate their influence on culture, and and is that because we're taught that way, or is because th- do you think that they feel it's their role to to set the culture? Even you know we'll get to that they actually don't, but why do you think they overestimate their impact?
2: Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and I think. Uh, as the more that we learn about um, cognitive bias and the way the mind works, uh, it, it becomes easier to see that um, that leaders overestimate their influence generally in organizations, and mm-hmm. culture is no is no exception. Um, look, I, my my sense of it is, uh, as I write in the book, is that um, I think there's two big reasons, or maybe three big reasons. The first is that um, especially in the U.S. Uh, American sort of uh, popular consciousness, the role of the individual and the individual leader in is is highly mythologized, mythologized right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the individual, the heroic individual, uh, tamed the wild country of America, and uh, it was individual leadership and individual uh, work that sort of made America what it is today. That's the, you know the popular mythology of the rugged individual, which has been Around for for decades, um, I think that contributes, and and the predominance of U.S. thinking in business, I think exal, you know exemplifies or exalts the the role of the leader as being the the the, the factor in corporate success or failure. Um, it's that in and, of, in and of itself is a myth, right? We know that the story is much more complicated than than one individual. Um, so I think that that contributes to it. I also think the the uh, need for leaders to uh, impart their own legacies and leave mm. legacy is very very strong. It's very human, very natural. Uh, and so um, when culture became sort of a, a, a de facto object of of of, of uh, popular inquiry and in, in especially in business schools in the uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, it became natural to sort of fuse. Leadership with the with culture and and sort of make the leadership culture connection um, one that be, um, that was you know a fairly compelling narrative for for uh, for business schools and and for leaders and frankly to be a little bit cynical about it uh, for consultants to uh, mm-hmm. their teeth into i mean there's a huge huge culture consulting industry it 's a billion dollar industry if you can believe it and um, it's a fairly convenient sell. If I can convince you as a leader that, you know, you and I can change the culture with um, a few simple steps, um, you know, that's a, that's a pretty compelling compelling sell. It's much harder to sell the idea that, you know, your culture is highly complex. Um, it's not a question of inputs and outputs. Uh, it's going to be a long, a long, tough journey, and it may not succeed. I probably am not going to sell many consulting gigs um, with that. Mm-hmm. So that's part of it.
1: Yeah, when when you when you talk about the consulting gigs, I always think about um um some of the companies that I've been in and and people coming on and and actually making the culture almost into a physical thing. But like, you know, putting those signs on the wall, okay? Um, you know, uh, big big signs on what mission vision is directing people to the culture. Why do we have a tendency we t- to make it so physical?
2: Yeah, that's one of the uh, one of the other myths. The culture is a physical thing, right? Uh, we, uh, you know, part of it is part of it is the way the brain works. Uh, we we analogical thinking, thinking in terms of analogy, thinking in metaphor, is is one of the features of human cognition. It's one of the things that makes us uniquely human. We reason in in we reason abstractly in analogy. We think of mm-hmm. we, we make sense of. Abstract things in terms of physical things, so it's very natural to think of culture as a physical thing. You hear phrases all the time like, you know, let's put it into our culture, or mm-hmm. you know, move our culture, right? As as if culture is kind of a, a thing that you can manipulate and push around. You know, I would ask the question, well, where exactly is that culture, and and uh, can you, you know, can you can you touch it? Can you can you throw it against the wall like a ball? I mean, you know, when you start sort of examining that uh, that particular myth, that metaphor you see that it falls apart pretty quickly but it's very convenient to to talk of culture in that way and, and, and frank and frankly it's it's uh, convenient and gives some gives us something to uh to focus on again that's that seems tangible and easy uh, easier
1: and when when you just said that it made me think of something you know where is that culture i mean um you know there's these surveys that people send out to try to determine it and I, I remember taking those, you know, as an employee and just checking the boxes. I mean, did they really work? <laughs> uh,
2: that's an interesting question. Well, one of, the, uh, one of the other myths of culture is that culture is, um, you know, synonymous with how people feel or employ attitudes. Um, one of the things that, that uh, cognitive science shows is that the attitudes are, are, neat, are, are not culture. employee attitudes the way you might think or feel about something could as well as much be a reaction or compensation for culture as an expression of it right Mm -hmm. and and we know from the science that attitudes are actually not great predictors of behavior people tend to again overestimate or underestimate how they feel or how they might act in a in a uh, hypothetical condition versus how they actually behave or act and there's Mm -hmm. there's not a high correlation there. I have nothing against uh, employee attitude surveys. They're important for engagement scores and you know, to get a sense of the climate, yep. but to, to confuse the way the employee population uh, thinks about or feels about uh, the organization is, is not a measure of culture. And in fact, it leads a lot of organizations astray uh, mm-hmm. with changing their culture when they're just trying to uh, you know, deal with uh, engagement, employee engagement. engagement. Yeah.
1: Um David, we're gonna take a short break now and when we come back, I you know, we're talking about these myths. I'd I'd like to then talk about um, different ways to look at culture because you're talking about the cognitive ways and talk about how culture is really creative is not created. If, if these myths are myths, then how is it really created? And we'll talk about that when we get back. And for our listeners, we are talking with David G. White, PhD, and he is the author of Rethinking Culture, which is already which is on Amazon and a new release that just came out last week called Disrupting Corporate Culture. And he is the partner and co-founder of Antos Global, located in Berkeley, California. And Antos Global focuses on new approaches to organizational culture and change based on the emergent science of the cultural mind. Now, to reach out to David, you can reach out to him on wwwontosglobal.com. And David is also on LinkedIn under D- David G. White, um, Jr., and you can see him on on YouTube. Also, there's disrupting culture uh, session on you, YouTube under disrupting corporate culture, and his books are available on Routledge and on Amazon. And this show is also brought to you by Cinda, and you can learn more about Cinda, Europe's digital, largest growing digital nonprofit agency on www.cinda.org. And with that, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
2: Tired of the get rich quick
3: or how to flip home shows? Are you ready to step up your game and invest in commercial real estate? James Nelson, a top New York City broker, will show you step-by-step how to acquire, operate, and profit. You'll also hear from real estate legends on how they made their fortunes and industry experts on strategies for success. Tune into Real Estate Investing, live from New York, on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Business. In business, many leaders have a great vision, but find their companies are lacking adequate execution. Transformative Experts with host Chris Elias takes you behind the scenes with real-life business leaders and transformative experts who can pinpoint why. Listen to learn how company culture drives execution to optimize results. How can you afford to miss it? Tune in live every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. It comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
0: You are listening to Leadership Beyond Borders. Do you have a question or comment about our show? Please send an email to Leadership Beyond Borders at Gmail.com. Again, that's Leadership Beyond Borders at Gmail.com.
1: Now back to this week's program.
0: Welcome
1: back. Leadership Beyond Borders on Voice America's business channel, and I'm Kimberly Lewis, your host. And today we're talking about corporate or organizational culture, and we're talking with David G. White, PhD, and he's the author of Rethinking Culture on, and this book is on Amazon, and he's got a new book out that just came out last week called Disrupting Corporate Culture. So, um, David, we were talking about the myths behind behind culture, and um, I, I want to talk about then what what re- is really going on. Okay, um, and in some of your writings, you talk about um, the reason we have these myths is because when we talk about corporate organizational culture, uh, we're doing it from a, a business or a psychological point of view, and we're using those disciplines to draw our conclusions on what culture should be. Could you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, thank you, Kimberly. Um, yeah, it's interesting when you when you think about culture in, as, as uh, studied in, in MBA programs and business schools, um, the dominant uh, disciplines that have um, sort of... Uh, Attach themselves to the culture field are economics and psychology and particularly i o psychology and, and social psychology and yet when you th- when you think back on the, on the literature overall, you know culture really is a um, is a phenomenon that 's been under study by anthropologists for hundred years, and sort of one might i 'm biased of course as an anthropologist but you know, anthropology uh, sort of owns the culture subject, and these other disciplines have sort of appropriated it. Um, and I'm being a little bit facetious, but but uh, some, to some extent, you know, um, psychologists are not really concerned with culture. Psychologists are concerned with the individual, and culture only comes into the picture when it's convenient to to study the individuals in, in groups. Um, economics, you know, e- economists don't really think about culture. The cu- culture's not the object of of uh, economic study except when it comes to trying to explain economic behavior and then culture becomes a topic or a subject that is appropriated to their means. So I guess what I'm trying to say is uh, from the anthropology perspective it's kind of interesting that these fields uh, appropriate the culture concept when uh, anthropologists have been sort of making culture the object of study uh, solely for for over a hundred years. Now part of the problem is anthropologists have never really concerned themselves much with business. Mm as you know. And so uh, I'm a cognitive anthropologist. I study the relationship between the mind and culture. And when you, but I've also worked in the, the business world as, a, as an organizational development practitioner and in, an in HR for almost 30, over 30 years now. So um, bringing, you know, the anthropology to the business world is an interesting, interesting challenge because it hasn't been done very much uh, over, over the last decades. And, and there's a lot of research now in the, on the emerging signs of what we call the cultural mind, which is really not trickling down into the business world very much. And that was really one of the objectives of the book was to try to bridge that gap.
1: Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about, you know, the, how it was based or what the business schools base it on um, with, you know, some psychology and e- economics, is, is that probably why so many leaders kind of look at culture and think that that this culture is going to give them predictable business outcomes or you know relate they kind of do a a, a correlation between the culture and business outcomes do you see that quite often or is I, is that a phenomenon yeah no i think that's well said i think that's
2: the, that's the predominant view the way the way i characterize it in the in the book is i think you know culture is thought of as a dependent variable you know as a it's you know no different than real estate or you know a, any other asset right you can manage your culture, the way you manage your your inventory, um, you know, or, uh, and, and, but in fact, again, from the perspective of, of cognitive science, you know, culture is, is really not a dependent variable. Um, The way that we, you know, the way that cognitive science thinks about culture radically changes that, that paradigm. Um, For example, um, when you think of culture as a dependent variable, you basically think of, you know, culture as something you can manipulate, and, you know, you, there's inputs and there's outputs. You do something to the culture and out pop, pops out something that you want to, to achieve. But from the cognitive science cons- conception, it's actually quite, it's actually the other way around. The way we like to say it is that culture follows task. Um, culture comes from what you do, uh, not what you do to the culture, but what you do for uh, all day long, what you do for a living. Uh, culture, culture comes from the work that you actually do. Uh, the brain is shaped by um, its environment and its environment and how the human interacts with that environment. And that's what is gives rise to culture. Uh, but that's a very different way of thinking about it uh, rather than thinking about it as a dependent variable.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, thinking about it that way, um, and, and I'd like to talk a little bit more about uh, thinking of it kind of as mind and culture in a cognitive way. If it's, if it's what you do. Um, does it make sense when I say, for example, you know, some certain industries, and I, I think of lawyers. Okay, um, that's the first thing that comes to my mind when I think of a law firm. I pretty much think that I, I have this picture in my mind that every law firm has the same culture. Okay, um, you know, and um, could could you? Am I right or am I wrong in that? I mean, can certain is there a certain pattern sometimes because of what people do, of that that have certain cultures, cu- cultures?
2: No, that's that's exactly it, and and it's quite interesting, right? Because in the popular consciousness, um, you know, if I were to say to you, uh, you know, Google and um, you know your, uh, you know, Google culture is a lot more like uh, Microsoft culture. Than it is like the culture of an HMO. You would probably would agree with that, right? And and mm-hmm. you know, law firms are more like each other than they are like NGOs, or um, you know uh, companies in uh, in the uh, consumer products field are more like each other than they are like manufacturing companies. And so there's there's truth to that. That's a that's a common conception, and there's truth to that. And the cognitive science kind of supports that. Why again? Because the brain, our brains are indelibly shaped by what we do all day long. So what we do shapes how we think. And when I say what we do, what I mean by that is the actual physical task or act of producing products or services, solving problems, working in particular groups with, in particular ways, et cetera. And so the, the theory of culture that, uh, that I'm trying to bring forth, which comes directly out of, out of uh, cognitive anthropology is the idea that culture in organizations really has two main, what we call grounding sources or, 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 you know, places where it originates. One is the, to your point, Kimberly, the the professionalization of the of, of the dominant group in the firm. So in other words, um, the apprenticeship, the, the process of becoming a professional lawyer, doctor, airline pilot, uh, engineer, um, you know, economist, accountant, the process of becoming... A professional in any one of those domains has with it a whole set of values, norms, enculturation processes, ways of thinking, ways of making meaning, um, sort of mindsets, right? And that, that whole the years of becoming a professional in those fields imparts um, these mental models or what we call these dominant logics mm-hmm. to to professionals that they bring to uh, to a firm, and this is why law firms are much more like each other. Uh, than they're, they're not. Uh, and they feel a particular way because lawyers tend to think in lawyerly like ways for good reason. They have been trained that way for, for years. So that's one of the major grounding sources of culture and organizations. The other is um, the process of solving very hard problems or what we call the task environment. Uh, the task environment is the 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 particular solutions that humans bring to solving problems in their, in their environment or in their e- local ecology. So overcoming big challenges um, and often sort of big challenges, I mean, you know, existential challenges um, leads to ways of thinking, dominant ways of thinking that then are applied analogically to other domains and that forms culture in organizations. So organization or, organizational culture usually has two dominant sources. One is the professionalization of the dominant groups or having solved really, really hard problems over time, for example, just to just to ground what I'm saying, Southwest Airlines, very known, very well known culture case. Herb Kelleher, the founder, had his vision of creating the what he calls the what he called the airline for the common man, uh, the airline that could, you know, provide low cost uh, service and make airline service accessible to basically virtually everyone. This is, you know, 25, 30 years ago. Um that led to a whole series of uh, practices which have shaped the Southwest culture uh, to, you know, with uh, one kind of airplane, very fast turnaround times, managers cleaning airplanes. And the entire Southwest business model is constructed around um, low cost and, you know, accessibility, right? And that, uh, those practices what, have what is what has given uh, rise to Southwest's famous culture. Um, which I'm now has morphed over the years, but uh, those practices um, come directly from um, having, or directly deal with, sort of solving the problem of mm-hmm. aiding um, low-cost, accessible uh, airline travel for the average the average person. You know, in the 1970s, as you as you know, airline travel really was sort of still reserved for uh, the elites, and it was very expensive. Mm-hmm. So. Problem of sort of solving that solving that business problem, if you will, and and successfully solving it, um, you can see that has given rise to a lot of what we think of a Southwest culture. And you look at any any successful firm that has a, t- tends to have a strong culture. Uh, I will speak of Microsoft since I was there for many years, and you see a similar pattern. Uh, you know, Microsoft solved the operating system problem. Microsoft created the operating system, which gave rise to the personal computer. That that act of doing that can be you can trace the the values and the thinking and the mindsets and the ideologies and the, and the, the scripts from those from that activity throughout the microsoft culture that mm-hmm. you see today mm-hmm.
1: And that makes a lot of sense, David. But uh, another question, even if you have a Microsoft or, or, or a Google and you have a, a culture that's that's based on this solving problem, within that culture, within that company itself, if you look at the dominant logic, can, can you have subcultures within there? Because um, just, you know, thinking of some of the companies that I've run, you know, the IT department is completely different than the marketing department. Okay. Um, so within this structure, if you're looking at dominant logic, the way people work, uh, can you have more cultures within one company?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Great, great question. And in fact, the idea of a um, single culture in a, in a, any large firm is, is another one of those those myths that we were talking about earlier. Um, the The cognitive science conception of culture sort of, again, turns that whole idea on its head. Um, We don't tend to think of culture, we don't think of cultures as any kind of dominant, unitary, single thing. Cultures are, if the metaphor that we thought about we use for culture was more along the lines of DNA, um, we would certainly, you know, we would never say, you know, humans have just one DNA, right? There's, There's a collection of DNA that makes us uniquely who we are. And we might think of culture in the same way as a collection of what you called, what we call dominant logics or, or mental models that are shared by a collective. And the source of these mental models or dominant logics comes from many different parts uh, of the organization uh, and different experiences and different task environments and different professional experiences. And th- that collection is a, what makes culture unique. And uh, to the extent that those uh, dominant logics are shared, that determines the degree to which a culture is shared and therefore is um, considered you know, um, unique to that company. But to your point, yes, the HR department, the engineering department, uh, the IT function, all of these sales organizations, we, all of the units are going to have very different dominant logics that inform basically how they see the world mm-hmm. and how we think of culture. Right
1: um this is this is fascinating david and and we're going to take a short break again and when we come back i i really want to talk to you about you know if we're going to look at it this way what does this actually mean to managers and and leaders today okay um you know if they're going to if they take this approach how are they going to manage better and how can how can we work with cultures and for our listeners, we are talking with David G. White, PhD, and he is the author of Rethinking Culture, which is a book on Amazon, and a new release that just came out called Disrupting Corporate Culture, and that's also on Amazon and on Rootledge. Now, if you'd like to reach out to David, you can go to his website, it's www. OnToast Global, and that's O N T O S Global.com. And you can also reach David on LinkedIn under David G. White Jr. And Ontos Global is also on LinkedIn. And if you'd like to see an interview with, uh, of, uh, with David on YouTube, then please just put into youtube disrupting corporate culture and you'll see david in youtube and i'm kimberly lewis your host and you're listening to leadership beyond borders and this broadcast is also brought to you by cinda cinda is one of europe's fastest growing nonprofit digital marketing and local search associations and if you want to learn more about cinda you can go to www.cinda.org and with that we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back
0: Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa,
2: play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn.
3: It is possible to have the career you want. Those who know how to manage their careers advance more quickly and have more opportunities. Listen for Career Central with host Lorraine Beeman to discover how to be successful in your current job or move into a new one. Tune in Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Small businesses are in trouble, and it didn't just start with COVID-19. From the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently, small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back. Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one, hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy.
1: Welcome back to Leadership Beyond Borders on Voice America's business channel. I'm Kimberly Lewis, your host. And today we're talking about organizational and corporate culture and a different way to view it, different than we've been taught in business school and probably the right way to look at it. And we're talking with david g white phd and he's the author of rethinking culture which is a book on amazon and also a new book that just came out last week called disrupting corporate culture so um david before the break we we talked about i asked the question about you know can you have different cultures within you know one company and and um that are driven by this the dominant logic that you're talking about um so uh, your answer was was yes, you can. So my question is, um, how to this new way of looking at culture? Um, why should business leader leaders care about looking at culture this way instead of the old methodic ways that we did before?
2: Yeah, it's uh, a great question. The answer is quite simple. Um, if business leaders should care about this, because business leaders businesses spend. Hundreds of millions of dollars on culture change programs. Most of them don't work. <laughs> so if you <laughs> want to maximize your ROI of your investment and and uh, maximize the resources that you put to culture change, uh, thinking about culture in a different way might actually be the beginning of uh, a road to success. Um, and and that's I, I sound a little facetious, but it, it really it, the amount of the amount of failed culture change projects that are out there in the world is, is astronomical, right? And and uh, it's 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 amazing that the culture fad has not been uh, abandoned altogether because of the number of failed culture change projects um, most don't work so um, yeah it's it's uh why to think differently about it is is because um, the the irony in all of this is that most of us intuitively get culture's pervasiveness we intuitively understand its power
1: mm-hmm. but
2: in thinking about what to do about it, we reduce the construct to, to something that, you know, is so simplistic and reduced. And, and uh, we, we essentially we, we essentially trivialize the, the concept to the point of meaninglessness where it no longer serves us. And by the time we actually get to doing a culture change program of some kind, you know, thinking of culture in one dimension, as you know, thinking about it as values or thinking about it as, you know, accountability or thinking about it as language, um, we, we will miss the fact uh, uh, we will, we will di- dilute the the, uh, the effort and, and miss the pervasiveness and the power that it actually holds as a resource mm-hmm. so it 's quite ironic right we We, we sim- oversimplify it in order to to make it work for us, and then we lose all the all the efficacy
1: yeah i mean it is it makes it quite easy when you think about it as physical and and language and coming from the top it it kind of makes our life a little bit easier so uh, how how would I as a leader? then, you know, what do you advise? And you work with a lot of companies all, all the time. Um, how do I start to make that shift myself and with my executive management to try to shift this thinking?
2: Yeah, well, the good news is, is that it is doable. Uh, and uh, it takes um, uh, a little bit more patience and a little bit more sophistication, but it's absolutely doable. We, we always start with the idea that, you know, a fish doesn't see its own water. Right When you start from that premise, you begin to appreciate uh, both the power and the complexity of culture right because um, and the first thing that we try to do is try to get the fish to see its own water, try to get the leaders to realize that culture comes from the brain, it comes from our collective adaptive responses to the world, and it resides in these dominant logics, which are essentially tacit or implicit ways of of uh, of seeing the world. We, we start with the idea that culture is what we call a reference system. Culture basically is knowledge. It's background mm-hmm. knowledge. It's, it's knowledge that we use every day to orient ourselves to the world, but we don't know that we're using it. And the very simple analogy I always use is, how do you know that when you get into an elevator, you don't look people in the eye? How do you know that? Well, you just, you just know it, right? <laughs> if you do look people in the elevator, you, you think you thought I was a weirdo, you might might get into <laughs> kind of Netflix. And, so that's culture. Uh, yeah, that's culture that and that's how culture works. It's background knowledge. It's a reference system that we use every day to orient ourselves. And yet we don't know where we're doing it until we until our attention is drawn to it. So the, the first work that the first thing that we do with leaders is we we draw their attention to the basic assumptions, the basic idealizations, the basic orientations, the basic mental models that they are using. To orient themselves to their to their worlds in their in this case their their organizations and their their businesses, and that that's a process that's that's a that's a it, that's takes some doing, but it it's actually uh, uh, can be done in many different ways. Sometimes we do it through uh, putting leaders through a particular workshop where we where we sort of use certain techniques to to do that. We we um, often do it through surveys where we surface these dominant logics through the assumptions. The embedded assumptions that people make about their business, Uh, and once we have that sort of identified, once we have kind of your dominant logics kind of identified and laid before you, we can start then to intervene, and that's that's an interesting process in and of itself because once I make your assumptions known to you, you know, Kimberly, here here is how you and your leadership team are seeing the world. Uh, Do you agree? You have already through the power of that awareness. Yeah, you already have a leg up on the on the intervention on how the interventions in your own culture might go. Once 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 I expose you to your own sort of dominant assumptions or dominant logics, um, that's the first part uh,
1: mm-hmm. of the topic. And, and then once I once I as a leader recognize those, uh, identify those dominant logics, then then that's where you can. You can say, you know, do they need to be shifted or should they be shifted or, um, you know, what do you do for the next step? So I have it now and I say, you know, I want to shift it. What do I do then?
2: This is the very interesting part, part of it. Uh, the interesting part is because dominant logics, uh, you know, the sort of DNA of culture, if you will, um, tend to surface most visibly in what we call organizational practices. They surface most, most visibly in practices. What, what's a practice? Practices are the formal and informal habits and routines and processes by which you run your business. So the way that we think about it is, uh, we have a, a way of showing you uh, across six dominant practice areas. One we call a practice area, you know, your, your, the practices of planning. How, you, how do you plan? How do you set strategy? the practices of, of uh, management, of, of, of management reporting, how do you how do you keep tabs on what's going on in the business, what's the reporting process, your customer practices, your innovation practices, your people practices, and even your social desirability practices. Um, mm-hmm. We break down your organization into these six practice areas and we start to show you how these dominant logics manifest as patterns, as patterns throughout these practices. And mm-hmm. I say our evident and obvious, and people often go, oh, wow, yeah, of course, you know, uh, the classic example is, you know, a manufacturing company, an industrial manufacturer that um, thinks, you know, as most manufacturers do, think very, you know, have a mm-hmm. very strong risk management or risk aversion, yeah. risk orientation, right, it, the cost of failure in manufacturing is very high, uh, you don't, you know, you don't ship refrigerators with bugs, right, mm-hmm. so, so Develop, having um, what we you know this, the logic of certainty is dominant in many manufacturing companies, and we, we can show you how the certainty logic manifests across all these different practices. So many practices in manufacturing companies are oriented towards being certain about the future or about decisions, mm-hmm. a lot of risk mitigation. So once you understand how your certainty logic, for example, might manifest across all of these different practice areas, then you start to have choice as a leadership team. About what do you want to do about that, right? Do do we want to reduce the number of, of uh, uh, management reporting meetings that we have every week or every month because we're spending twenty hours a month um, reviewing the business, and you know we could free yeah. time. I mean, become it becomes uh, the tactical decisions like that become very important as as culture change artifacts. The big difference here, though, is I'm as you can appreciate is I'm I'm thinking about culture not just as something for the HR department or not just something that has to do with people, how we hire, or who we hire. I'm thinking about practices as really being the things that, the ways in which you run your business and the way in which you see your business uh, fundamentally. And that's yeah. the intervention focus.
1: I mean, that, to me, that makes a lot of logical sense. Um, and um, just a question on that, because when we talk about, you know, looking at uh, identifying dominant logics and looking at organizational practices, um you know the last 6 months we, we we've gone through you know the, this change of how we do business i mean are you seeing that many companies are just kind of thrown into new culture panic because because we've actually changed our practices and and maybe those dominant logics have changed um, just to comment on on the state of culture uh, and how it shifted with the pandemic
2: Uh, Great question. I just wrote an article on this very topic. Uh, So ironically, what we see is that um, often in the case of these massive black swan, you know, disruptor disrupting events like like the current pandemic, we often see it's a little bit industry specific. But in many of our clients, we actually see these dominant logics actually being strengthened, not changed. So, for example, Mm -hmm. the company that's very risk averse or very financially driven, you know, some of our clients are, you know, really driven by quarter quarterly earnings, and that is the sole focus of their of their business. The tendency to double down on on that dominant logic as the as the raison d'etre of your business is all the more acute in, mm-hmm. in situations like now, like like we see ourselves in today. So we often see the dominant logics at the core of a, of a business um, actually being strengthened under huge environmental stressors, right? Just like, just like the human body, right? Under, under stress, we tend to revert to um, habits and routines and, and, uh, you know, our own individual cultures that are, are most familiar to us under stress. It's hard to change under stress. Now, I think there are exceptions. I think, I think if the pandemic continues, we are going to see, uh, you know, massive task, business change, business model and business task, task change. In the hospitality industry, for example, and the airline industry, Mm -hmm. you know, these are the industries that I think are going to be where we could see pretty significant culture change on the idea that culture follows task, right? So if your business model fundamentally changes, if the way you do business fundamentally has to change, you will see culture change. But. And most of our clients, it, we see the
1: opposite. Uh, interesting. I, I, I uh, that actually, your answer makes sense, but it surprised me at first. Okay, um, but but now that when you explain it, you're right. Um, we're getting towards the end of the show, David. I mean, this is just so interesting, and I just think um, one last thing. If you had one thing for the leaders and the executives that are that are listening to us today, one piece of advice on. Um, Know culture. What would that be?
2: Yeah, um, it's interesting. I, I, I think I, I think I would borrow a, uh, a phrase from my my partner in crime, a co-founder and partner at Antos, Lisa Koss, who's a, uh, 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 co-founded the firm with me, and she she always talks about you know the power of awareness. I think that once leaders become aware of the dominant logic that drives how they and their organizations see the world and 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 have that awareness and and sort of can embrace that awareness the power of that awareness is quite tra- can be quite transformative it sounds very simple but once you are aware of you know the once you are the fish and are, are able to see the water that you're swimming in there's a huge there's huge power in that mm-hmm. and yeah. uh and I and I, I find that if I could say one thing, I I would steal Lisa's uh, Lisa's phrase here and, and use that in, in the in the culture change um, yeah. endeavor.
1: Well, I think that's a great way and um, awareness. And thank you, Lisa, also for helping us out. And um, so for our listeners, we've been talking about organizational and corporate culture. We've been talking with David G. White, Ph.D., and he is the author of Rethinking Culture, and that book's on Amazon, and a new release that just came out last week called Disrupting Corporate Culture. And if you'd like to, David is also the partner and co-founder of Antos Global, which is located in Berkeley, California. And Antos Global focuses on new approaches to organizational culture and change based on the emerging science of the cultural mind. Now, please look uh, into Antos Global, and their website is www.antosglobal.com, and also connect with David. You can connect with him over the website, but he's also on LinkedIn under David G. White, Jr., and Antos Global is also on LinkedIn, and if you'd like to see a YouTube video with David, you can uh, just put into YouTube, Disrupting Corporate Culture, and you'll see a great interview there. And the books are available on Routledge and on Amazon. And uh, David, thank you so much again for being with us today. It's been absolutely a fascinating session.
2: Thank you, Kimberly. Great, great to talk to you.
1: And uh, listeners, uh, please tune in to us each week at 3 p.m. specific time on Tuesdays. And if you miss us, then just go to Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes. We're on all available podcast platforms. And with that, I'd like to thank you for listening to this week and tune in again next week.